From New York, this is Democracy Now! Completing Sweden's accession to NATO is an historic step that benefits the security of all NATO allies at this critical time. It makes us all stronger and safer. Turkey's agreed to drop its opposition to Sweden joining NATO, which is holding a major summit in Lithuania, just 20 miles from the border of Belarus. We'll speak to the head of Sweden's oldest peace organization, which opposes NATO membership. We'll also look at Ukraine's push to join NATO with the nation's Katrina Vandenhuvel. Then, as another heat wave descends on Texas, the migrant death toll is increasing. When you take water away from people, you know, what are you saying? You prefer for migrants to die? The heat has been very, very intense, you know, with a heat index getting up to 115 to 120, uh, almost on a daily basis. We'll also look at Governor Greg Abbott's law that just went into effect, eliminating water breaks for construction workers in Texas. And we'll talk to a TV meteorologist in Iowa who resigned his job after receiving a death threat over his reporting on the climate emergency. I'm Chris Gloninger, the former chief meteorologist at KCCI in Des Moines, Iowa. I went to Iowa so I could talk a little bit about climate change with my audience, but it did result in a death threat last summer. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Leaders of Western military powers have gathered in Vilnius, Lithuania, for NATO's annual summit, with Russia's war in Ukraine central to the discussions. On the eve of the summit, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan said he would drop his opposition to Sweden's bid to join NATO, clearing the way for its accession as the alliance's 32nd member. Following the announcement, Biden administration says it will move ahead with the transfer of F-16 fighter jets to Turkey, pending congressional approval. Earlier today, President Biden spoke briefly to report alongside NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg. And this historic moment, adding the Finland and Sweden to, uh, to NATO is consequential, and uh, your leadership really matters. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is scheduled to meet with President Biden at the NATO summit Wednesday. Ahead of the meeting, he accused NATO members of ignoring Ukraine's bid to join the alliance, writing, quote, It's unprecedented and absurd when time frame is not set neither for the invitation nor for Ukraine's membership. It seems there's no readiness neither to invite Ukraine to NATO nor to make it a member of the alliance, he said. We'll have more on the NATO summit and Russia's war in Ukraine after headlines. Russia launched missile and drone attacks on Ukraine's capital, Kyiv, in the southern port of Odessa overnight. The airstrikes followed a Russian attack on a humanitarian aid distribution center in southeastern Ukraine that killed seven people. In Russia, the Kremlin said Monday the embattled leader of the Wagner mercenary group met in Moscow with Russian President Vladimir Putin last month, five days after the Wagner forces launched a failed mutiny. Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov said Wagner chief Yevgeny Yeni Prigozhin was part of a three-hour meeting on June 29th involving nearly three dozen other Wagner leaders. The commanders provided their account of what happened. They stressed the fact that they are loyal supporters and soldiers of the head of state and the commander-in-chief. They said they were ready to carry on fighting for their motherland. 
President Biden's declared a state of emergency in Vermont, where authorities have closed off downtown areas of the capital, Montpelier, after two months' worth of rain fell in less than 48 hours. Vermont's rivers are expected to crest today at about 20 feet above normal, the state's worst flooding since 1927. In New York, Governor Kathy Hochul said this week storms dumped up to eight inches of rain, causing flash flooding in parts of Hudson Valley and Finger Lakes regions. Hochul called it a once-in-a-thousand-year weather event caused by climate change. This is the new normal. And we in government, working with our partners on the ground, have to work with our communities to build up resiliency to be prepared for the worst because the worst continues to happen. In Arizona, excessive heat warnings remain in effect, with forecasters warning Phoenix is poised to break its record of consecutive 110 degrees plus days. In Florida, forecasters predict heat indexes in parts of the state are set to exceed 110 degrees Fahrenheit or 43 degrees Celsius by the end of the week. A marine heat wave has pushed ocean temperatures off Florida's coast as high as 96 degrees, more than 5 degrees above normal. On Monday, the World Meteorological Organization reported the first week of July was the hottest week ever recorded on Earth. We'll have more on the climate crisis after headlines and speak with a meteorologist who's quit his job after facing death threats in Iowa for talking about climate change. In the occupied West Bank, Israeli troops shot and killed a Palestinian man Monday, alleging he threw a handmade explosive device at soldiers and fired on them at a checkpoint outside an illegal Israeli settlement west of Ramallah. Eyewitnesses disputed the account by Israel's military, saying 33-year-old Bilal Ibrahim Khada was shot from behind as he drove his car. Witnesses also said Israeli soldiers blocked paramedics from reaching Khada, leaving him to bleed to death. Nearly 200 Palestinians have been killed by Israeli fire this year, including including 33 children. In Israel, thousands of people have blocked highways in protest after the far-right coalition, led by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, renewed its push to dramatically limit the power of the judiciary. Early this morning, 64 members of Israel's 120-member Knesset voted in favor of legislation that would put strict limits on the oversight powers of Israel's Supreme Court. The bill must still receive two more votes before it can be written into law. At least 10 sit-in protesters were arrested for nonviolently blocking entry to the Knesset ahead of the vote. This is protester Deborah Galili of Tel Aviv. What this government is doing is not okay. Democracy is under attack. Israeli rights are under attack. The rights of Israeli citizens are under attack. And we're here to protect that and to say stop the coup, stop the judicial coup. Israeli and U.S. military forces have begun joint exercises in Israel and over the Mediterranean amidst rising tensions with Iran. The war games include live-fire drills and the mid-air refueling of nuclear-capable fighter jets. In Tunisia, rights groups are urging the government to stop the mass deportation of sub-Saharan migrants and refugees and to provide humanitarian aid to hundreds of asylum seekers who were forcibly rounded up and abandoned by Tunisian authorities at the Libyan border. 
Footage published by Al Jazeera shows hundreds of refugees trapped in the heavy, militarized remote region of Ben Gardein at the Tunisian-Libyan border. Many were forced to drink seawater after days without food or fresh water, and those wounded received no medical care. Human Rights Watch has collected the testimonies of dozens who've said they were sexually assaulted or raped at times, facing abuse from authorities on both sides of the border. Tunisia's president, Kais Sayed, has denied the reports, claiming the refugees are being treated humanely. Reproductive rights advocates are gathering in Des Moines, Iowa today as the Republican-controlled state legislature is convening a special session to ban nearly all abortions after just six weeks of pregnancy. This comes after Iowa's Republican Governor Kim Reynolds called on state lawmakers to return to the Capitol exclusively to pass the new measure. Current Iowa law allows abortions for up to 20 weeks of pregnancy. In Nebraska, a woman has pleaded guilty to providing her 17-year-old daughter with abortion pills last year and then helping her dispose of the fetus. Jessica Burgess admitted to providing the abortion when her daughter, Celeste, was 29 weeks pregnant. Last year, Nebraska law still allowed abortions for up to 20 weeks. In May, Republican Nebraska Governor Jim Pillen signed a bill banning the procedure after 12 weeks. Burgess is scheduled for sentencing in September. In related news, the Marine Corps is operating without a Senate-confirmed commandant for the first time in more than 160 years, after Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville of Alabama again refused to hold a vote on a nominee over his opposition to the Pentagon policy to cover the travel costs of employees forced to cross state lines to obtain an abortion. Tuberville has for months held up the promotion and confirmation of hundreds of high-ranking generals and admirals, including members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. In Washington, D.C., protesters are demanding the U.S. government drop its espionage charges against WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange and for his immediate release from a British prison as he faces extradition from the U.K. to the U.S. Ben Cohen, co-founder of the ice cream company Ben & Jerry's, and Jody Evans, co-founder of the anti-war group Code Pink, were arrested in the peaceful action last Thursday. Ben Cohen spoke to the crowd as he set fire to a copy of the Bill of Rights, saying, quote, freedom of the press has gone up in smoke. If the U.S. is allowed to continue this prosecution, the precedent that it sets is that the U.S. can arrest any journalist of any nationality in any country around the world if they print something that the U.S. doesn't like. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. A major NATO summit has begun in Lithuania, in Vilnius, which is located just 20 miles from the border of Belarus. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is scheduled to meet with President Biden at the summit Wednesday as Ukraine continues to push to join NATO. Ahead of the meeting, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan has dropped his opposition to Sweden joining the military alliance. If approved, Sweden would join Finland as NATO's newest members. NATO NATO membership would mark the end of over 200 years of military neutrality for Sweden. Sweden and Finland applied for NATO in May 2022, just months after Russia invaded Ukraine. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg spoke Monday. 
President Erdogan has agreed to forward the accession protocol for Sweden to the Grand National Assembly as soon as possible and work closely with the Assembly to ensure ratification. Completing Sweden's accession to NATO is an historic step that benefits the security of all NATO allies at this critical time. It makes us all stronger and safer. For the past year, Turkey's opposed NATO membership for Sweden. Turkey has accused Sweden of giving refuge to Kurdish militants, including members of the PKK. In recent months, Sweden took a number of steps to address Turkey's concerns, including amending its constitution and strengthening its anti-terrorism laws. Turkey is also now pushing to be led into the European Union. As part of an apparent deal, the Biden administration also agreed to move forward with transferring F-16 warplanes to Turkey. President Biden's national security adviser, Jake Sullivan, spoke earlier today. President Biden has been clear and unequivocal for months that he supported the transfer of F-16s to Turkey, that uh, this is in our national interest. It's in the interest of NATO that Turkey get that capability. Uh, he has placed no caveats or conditions on that in his public and private comments over the past few months, and he intends to move forward with that transfer in consultation with Congress. We go now to Stockholm, Sweden, where we're joined by Susten Barioa. She is president of the Swedish Peace and Arbitration Society, which is 140 years old and one of the oldest peace organizations in the world. Susten, thanks so much for joining us. If you can talk about this major turnaround um, on the part of Turkey that now allows for Sweden to become part of NATO since they were opposing it, and how you feel about Sweden becoming a part of NATO. Yes, thank you for letting me join the show today. Well, I feel deeply that this is unfortunate and that this is really a historic mistake uh, for of Swedish priorities because it will neither make Sweden more safe, neither the world, but it can lead, you know, to 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 greater tensions and contribute with more polarization in an already heavily militarized world. So yeah, we are we are really sad, but it's also a bit hard to to understand that this day has come our politician has pushed so so it's like the the first priority of our country to join nato and as as someone coming from the peace movement we we don't see that that's how we create peace with the deterrence and uh, uh, more weapons and and basing the the security policies also on nuclear weapons. That's something completely new for Sweden. We have been a neutral, um, uh, free from nukes in our country. Uh, and, uh, and we have had a, a special position in the world, you know, with the 200 years of, of peace, at least at, on our territory. So, uh, but no one is talking about uh, that this is, this is sad and hasty and that we haven't had any debate in Sweden. So there's just many emotions at the same time uh, today. Well, could you share with us why you think this is happening, given the fact that even at that during World War II, when Europe was being overrun by Nazi Germany uh, and there was a, a, the United States and Britain and France were fighting the 
uh, the Germans, uh, Sweden maintained neutrality then. Uh, what is the public sentiment on this issue? Uh, actually, I think uh, we have some historical uh, uh, shame that we didn't uh, support um, the the right side that we let the Nazis uh, kill so much that we were neutral. That it's also a side of that, you know. And we also let trains, uh, Nazi trains, pass to Norway, and and uh, so so there is kind of also a shame to this neutrality. And I think the politicians and of course some of our population felt we have to be on the right side now when this uh, hor horrifying. Uh, invasion of, of, uh, of Russia uh, began last year. And, and also, the, uh, uh, in terms of the, the decision uh, by F uh, Finland as well uh, to uh, clearly to uh, join NATO, uh, what do you think this means in terms of uh, the increased uh, polarization and, uh, and divisions uh, within Europe? Um, I don't know. The, I mean, if Russia is also a European country, which it, part of it is, I think, I mean, th this, is, this is where we have the polarization right now. And, um, and, and there's, um, it's just um, really tough uh, seeing all the world um, um, putting so much money into weapons uh, and also the Swedish weapons industry is making huge profits right now. Uh, the demand uh, for arms are, are huge. As you know, also these cluster bombs that we, we have been working as or our organization that to make Sweden a, a sign and, uh, that they should be banned. Uh, but, you know, now we enter in an alliance where then the states have not signed. There's right now so many questions that we have not have uh, any time in Sweden to discuss. There's not been any interest of uh, really deeply analyzing what consequences this will have for Sweden in terms of, of what you're asking about polarization, what will happen to our conscripts. Will they now defend the whole uh, um, alliance or, or just Swedish territory? There's... Um, um, well, and finally, let me ask mm. you, before yeah. we go, the issue of changing the Swedish constitution and laws around the issue of Kurds in Sweden, um, <clears throat> so many of whom the Turkish president considers terrorists, but has not been considered until now terrorists by the Swedish government. What, 1 percent of the population of Sweden is Kurdish. Um, about 100,000 Kurds live there. Can you talk about what this means and why Sweden did this at the behest of uh, the Turkish president? Oh, I think Turkey has hold, uh, held Sweden as a hostage. So it was just one of the demands, you know, that, that Sweden had to give up to stand up, you know, for the international uh, law that's been really crucial in our foreign politics before. But, but we had to, we were pushed, I mean, not we, but our politicians uh, were, were letting Turkey push us in that way. And we also opened up for arms trade uh, to Turkey, which has been, we had a ban on uh, <laughs> one and a half year ago. So there's been such a dramatic shift in Sweden. So uh, it's really a, bit, a lot to digest, actually. 
Well, <clears throat> Sisten Badio, we want to thank you so much for being with us, president of the Swedish Peace and Arbitration Society, speaking to us from Stockholm. This is Democracy Now!, as we turn now to the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, who's expected to attend the NATO summit, where he's scheduled to meet with President Biden Wednesday. Ahead of the meeting, Zelensky accused NATO members of ignoring Ukraine's bid to join NATO, writing, it's unprecedented and absurd when time frame is not set neither for the invitation nor for Ukraine's membership. It seems there is no readiness neither to invite Ukraine to NATO nor to make it a member of the alliance, he wrote today. Well, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg addressed the issue earlier today. On uh, the membership issue, um, I also expect that allies will uh, uh, send uh, a clear and positive message on the path forward towards uh, membership uh, for uh, Ukraine. Um, I have proposed a package of three elements uh, with a more practical support uh, with a multi-year program to ensure full interoperability between the Ukrainian forces and the NATO forces. This, is move, uh, this will move Ukraine closer to NATO. We're joined now by Katrina Vanden Heuvel. She's publisher of The Nation magazine and a columnist for The Washington Post. Her recent piece for The Guardian, co-authored with James Carden, is headlined, Now is not the time for Ukraine to join NATO. Well, if you can comment on all of these fast-breaking developments, from the way being cleared for Sweden to join the military alliance NATO, to Ukraine demanding to be let in now, and the response of the NATO alliance. Thank you, Amy. Thank you, Juan. Um, I just wanted to speak briefly about someone who should be remembered, the Swedish Prime Minister, Olaf Palme. I'm sure your listeners, your viewers remember he was a true internationalist. He was against imperialism of all kinds, American, Soviet. And he was someone who understood that true security didn't come through the barrel of a gun or a bomb. So there's a lot of horse trading. I think the F-16s to Turkey played a huge role in smoothing the way for Erdogan to uh, go ahead and acknowledge Sweden's uh, role in NATO to uh, accept membership. I do think uh, that Zelensky, uh, as resilient as he's been, uh, as effective in leading uh, his country's image in the world, knows full well, I would think, that the art articles, the principles, the very principles of NATO uh, contravene the possibility of Ukraine joining at this, at this point. They, they would include ethnic disputes, extraterritorial disputes. And I think those need to be resolved uh, before Ukraine is even considered for accession. In terms of Stoltenberg, uh, he's extended his tenure by a year. Uh, he is probably one of the—I mean, he talks in weapons. That's his language, as you could hear now. So the militarization of a military institution is something we're witnessing. And it's really all these meetings, with some exceptions, have been about weapons. Weapons. So one seeks, even at a military alliance, which NATO is, it's not a coffee clutch. In so many ways, it should have disappeared after the Warsaw Pact, the Soviet Union's military alliance collapsed, but it proceeds. But in the President Biden, who has not been clear in so many ways and has shifted goalposts in terms of which weapons may go to Ukraine, was very clear in his interview with Fareed Zakaria on Sunday that Ukraine was not going to receive membership at this NATO summit. 
Katrina, I wanted to ask you, President Biden said in an interview with Fareed Zakaria that the U.S. would provide security assistance uh, to Ukraine comparable to what Israel receives. How do you interpret that and what would that mean in practice? You know, they are in closed doors right now in Vilnius, Juan, trying to hammer out what that means, what President Biden said. I think there's such a pre- such pressure to find a way to include Ukraine, but not fully include Ukraine. What I think, you know, there was a conference at the beginning of June in London about reconstruction of Ukraine. One would hope that at this gathering, there would be some attention paid to what may mean a trillion dollars for the world community. And what was ponied up in London was something like 15 billion. There are reports now uh, that Zelensky has set up an office in Kiev for uh, economic development, which BlackRock has played a major role in. So I, I you know, fear that as we witness the militarization and the war proceeding, there's the future of Ukraine is being uh, negotiated in other places. And I do think one wishes that NATO would focus on a more inclusive, but it's not its role, but that there was a more inclusive security architecture that was on possibility a possibility in uh, this moment because it's, uh, you know, it's we're, we were talking or you were talking earlier about the nuclear dangers. These are serious. The environmental dangers. We talked recently about the dam in Ukraine. I mean, this is ravaged territory, not just the thousands of those maimed and wounded and killed by so by Russian forces and Ukraine versus Russia. So how one begins to find a diplomatic exit is an interesting and beginning, I think, to be discussed in back channels, which is often where things begin. Yeah, and specifically about those back channels, given the fact that right now in this uh, summit, the, the elephant in the room is likely not to be addressed, that sanctions haven't worked, that all the all the military aid given to Ukraine uh, have not been able to push the Russians back, and, and that the offensive, the much touted offensive that was supposed to be in the spring, then came in the summer, has gone nowhere. Uh, but uh, the uh, NATO ministers are unlikely to uh, frankly discuss uh, the lack of progress uh, of their alliance in this war. There is what no about these back channel discussions? Yeah, there's no scrutiny. There's no self accountability. One. I mean, the back channels are interesting. I know you've had my colleague on over the years, Peter Cornblue, talking about the history of back channels. It turns out that in April, former head of the Council on Foreign Relations, Richard Haas, former uh, Biden official, Charles Kupchin, and Tom Graham, another Soviet Russianologist, met with Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov in New York and may have had a series of meetings. The White House knew about it, did not sanction it, has been debriefed about it. And it is really the idea of moving from the battlefield to the diplomacy and to the negotiating table. I think that's hopeful. It's one track. It's citizen, you know, track two, track citizen diplomacy. But, you know, part of the problem, Juan and Amy, the reason one of the moves toward cluster bombs is that Ukraine has been going through artillery shells, I believe two million, and there are none in the pipeline. And the same issue has arisen with President Biden now possibly renewing these long uh, army, long missile attack 
the missiles, which Jake Sullivan a year ago said if the United States used it would lead to World War III. So there's a mission creep that I think we need to pay attention to. When Jan Stoltenberg spoke just recently, you played the tape of interoperability. What that means in normal peace speak is more weapons, more and more weapons that the arms manufacturers will make out like bandits because NATO countries will have to be in sync. And in sync often means buying U.S. weapons. It's, you know, the militarization of our mindsets, of our approach to security dangers and horrors is a failure. It's just, it's been a failure. And the new challenges, as Amy read out, the climate issues and all of that, the nuclear issues, these are not going to be won by horrific, grinding wars of attrition. So we are in a kind of World War I situation with 21st century missiles, ignoring some of the key challenges uh, we really should face. And I'll say one last thing. I mean, in terms of President Biden lecturing Ukraine, I mean, the resiliency of Ukrainians has been extraordinary. But for President Biden to say they're not, it's premature, they're not prepared, they have to deal with their corruption, their, you know, problems, we would do well to get our own house in order before going abroad. And that's not isolationism, but it's just reality check that we would do well to do that. Well, Katrina, uh, before oh, I, we go, I want to have you make clear the distinction between that Biden is making clear between pathway to NATO and actual invitation to join. I mean, it seems Biden clearly understands, right, the U.S. is the lead one right now in resisting Ukraine becoming a member of NATO during the war with Russia, because he understands that it means that all of these 32, and if Ukraine joins 33 countries, have an obligation to fight Russia. But all of the um, benchmarks have changed over time, have fallen away, um, including what the Biden just approving cluster bombs. So talk about what that means. And if they say that they won't let Ukraine join until after the war, doesn't that push Putin to continue the war? Well, I do think that President Biden is deeply concerned about looking like it looks like the United States is at war with Russia, which on some days it does. I mean, it's a proxy war. So there's you also have not only the principles I mentioned earlier, Amy, which really do not permit Ukraine to join under NATO's own principles. But you have something called Article 5, which is an attack on one NATO country, is, you know, everyone mobilizes. And I think President Biden is aware of that. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a bind. But there are, you know, they are probably hammering out, as Juan alluded to, this idea that it would be akin to security guarantees offered to Israel. I don't know what that means. I don't know if they know what that means, but they're hammering out something for a face-saving uh, presentation at the end of the summit or tomorrow when Zelensky meets with Biden. Uh, but I, you know, it's uh, it's it's going to be a long way, I think, for Ukraine. It may, I may be wrong. There may be fast track. In addition, if I could just say another thing that's emerged is you do have some signs, small signs that in Congress, you've had 19 representatives led by Barbara Lee and Elon Omar and Sarah Jacobs issuing a, uh, a resolution, not protesting the war as much as the cluster bombs, 
but it's a sign of life in the body body politic of some awareness of how grinding and possibly insecurity producing this war is. And I, I think that's uh, an important s signal and uh, one that the administration may not wish to pay attention to, but I think needs to as we enter the election season. Katrina Vandenhoeven, I want to thank you for being with us, publisher of The Nation magazine, columnist for The Washington Post, and we'll link to your piece in The Guardian. Uh, that piece headline, Now is Not the Time for Ukraine to Join NATO. Next up, as the heat dome in Texas arrives, where migrants at the border face deadly conditions, and the Republican governor of Texas, Abbott, has just signed a law that went into effect eliminating water breaks for construction workers in Texas. Stay with us. از کف میایم به راست هرم میزنیم شو میکنیم ببین چقدر دیدنی 44 سالتون سال شکست فجی اون روز همه داری دهن میپرید از کف میایم به راست هرم میزنیم شو میکنیم ببین چقدر دیدنی 44 سالتون سال شکست فجی اون روز همه داری دهن میپرید بگوام من فال گیرم تو قهوه نظام سار دیدم یه شیر داشت و قالش کار میکرد تو روز بود تعبیر خواب نه قهوه زدم براتون فنی باید تحمل کنید تلخیش همین اول کار شدیم تشبیه به فنجونه که تونل وقتی چپ میشه میره شیرش مسما یکم صد کن نیت که کاردیولا بزنن گوشت گوشه میزنم بذارین برق و لازم میشه وقتی بشنوی همشو یه سخت میبینم وسط فال هم گارد ویژم طلبهان یه دسته با کت شلوار کروات یه بسته به اختلاس یه بسته به راند از لابیای اونور آب روزنامه نگار و خبرنگار تا هنرمندای جیره بگیر با دادگاه شدن طرف حساب از بسیج بگیر تا اطلاعاتی از پایین بگیر و برس بالایی همه دارن میکنن تقلا قوقای شده مثل کارایی که آغازادار میکرد جدا رو اسمشون جاغا هارون Iranian rapper Tamar Salehi on Monday, a court in Iran sentenced Salehi to six years and three months in prison for joining anti-government protests last year. Salehi had been facing a possible death sentence. He was prosecuted over lyrics and widely circulated songs and music videos that criticized Iran's government following the death of 22-year-old Masa Amini in police custody after she was arrested for not wearing her hijab properly. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. As we turn now to the massive heat dome that is descending on southern United States this week, could be one of the worst in the region's history, breaking records for intensity and longevity and impacting some 50 million people in Florida, Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, Southern California, and Nevada. Heat domes are a key part of heat waves have become hotter and longer due to climate change. Heat is now the leading cause of weather-related death in the United States. In a minute, we'll look at the heat's impact on workers and prisoners in Texas, which just banned mandatory water breaks. But we begin along the southwest border, where more than 100 migrants have already died from heat this year. Last week alone, the Border Patrol officials reported 13 deaths and 226 rescues for dehydration and other heat-related causes. Democracy Now! spoke to Humane Borders board member volunteer Lori Cantillo about the group's work to maintain water stations for migrants crossing the Sonoran Desert and Oregon Pipe Cactus National Monument along the Arizona and Mexico border. And many of these people are crossing uh, without any idea what uh, lies ahead, how inhospitable the conditions are. There's no shade. Uh, oftentimes they're traveling with no water, no food, no hats. Uh, there's small children with them. 
Uh, I observed on my last water run a woman who was carrying a three to four month old infant on her back. So, you know, these are just uh, really harsh conditions. And I'm very concerned about the toll that it's going to take on on human health. This comes as thousands of migrants are languishing in camps that often have no running water as they struggle to book appointments to enter the United States through a new government smartphone app. And Texas has started to install what it calls a floating barrier on the Rio Grande that has raised concern about drowning risks for people crossing the river. For more, we go to South Texas, where the heat indexes could reach 115 degrees Fahrenheit this week. We're joined in Falfurdias by Eddie Canales, director of the South Texas Human Rights Center. Eddie, welcome back to Democracy Now! Under terrible circumstances, explain what this heat wave and U.S. policy and Texas policy means for migrants when it comes to access to water and life itself. Well, thank you uh, for having me on, uh, explaining <clears throat> explaining the extreme heat that has uh, been around already here for close to a month in terms of heat index reaching 115 to 120 degrees. We uh, the center provides uh, water, you know, in, in terms of for the last nine years, ten years, we have provided water stations. Uh, it's a guessing game in terms of where we can provide the water stations for migrants that are coming through. This year in Brooks County, there has been a, a 22 uh, confirmed uh, uh, deaths in terms of recoveries of uh, human remains and bodies. And uh, we're, you know, we were we're dealing with this, the the climate change, and this is an example in terms of the extreme heat that we're facing here in South Texas. We, um, where there, you know, people are are, um, you know, having to deal with with that aspect of it, and we we have access in some of the ranches in Brooks County. We have been very gracious in allowing some of the ranches to to provide some of the water. But the other day, we encountered a situation in one of the surrounding counties where we had placed uh, some water stations. Um, along a route there that's right out one of the counties that is uh, surrounding next to Brooks County. And and uh, 12 of those water stations were missing, uh, were gone. And we had just uh, within the last couple of weeks, we had checked those water stations. Um, and and they were, they were fine. They've been there for close to, to nine years. And we, we uh, checked with the uh, Texas Department of Transportation, uh, they had no nothing to do with the removal of those water stations. So we're investigating the, the fact that other uh, in that county ranchers have previously taken water stations that we've had uh, present. And we're just dealing and continuing our investigation regarding, you know, who who was why would you want to remove water stations that are life saving for people um, and I think it re- represents the sentiment that is being uh, prevails here in the state of Texas by the governor in terms of really, really uh, um, having doubling up on a lot of the enforcement and, and, and spending a lot of the state funds to try to deter people from coming. Um, it is <clears throat> that's not the case. There's no deterrence. You know, migration is not going to be stopped in any time soon. So we need to deal with that situation in a more compassionate, in a more uh, economic sense. That what makes economics, people are coming here to work. 
People are coming here to hit the go to the big cities and do some of the work that is out of that is not being done by anybody else. So, what process do we have beyond an enforcement only approach? Placing a buoy, placing and and I think that extends out to some of the some of the ranchers in in that area in the Jim Hogg area in terms of where why the water stations would be removed. You know, and not and why construction workers can take a break in this uh, heat. So it's a reality that we have. Uh, we need to um, <clears throat> the extreme heat is having an effect. Uh, con- migrant deaths has continued to happen until we have a, a policy that makes sense to in terms of receiving workers that are coming through essential workers that are coming through to provide and contributed to this this economy in this country, and also at the same time, you know, deal with the the, the lack of human rights from their from their home country. And and uh, Eddie Canales, could you talk about this uh, uh, this new initiative of Governor Greg Abbott to put a floating barrier uh, uh, in the Rio Grande to prevent uh, people from coming through? Well, we just we just had. Um, I mean, over the last past year, there's there has been a lot of in the uh, Eagle Pass, uh, Piedras Negras area, there there has been a lot of drownings, and um, so I don't know how how effective it's just still an enforcement only approach, and none of the efforts that uh, Governor Abbott has really uh, undertaken have been, have been effective to to any degree. The buoy is a thousand feet long. I just don't I just don't see how that's going to deter people. They're just going to move to a more different a different area, more dangerous area in terms of trying to get through. The The process right now has slowed down considerably in terms of 50% less apprehensions at the border. So, but but still, people are still um, coming through un, you know, undetected or uninspected in that regards. Uh, yesterday, we received 12 calls out of the center here, and 12 of those calls... Um, only one of them had used the CBP one form, and the other eleven people, uh, families, we had to, re- you know, were reporting that you know those those people are missing, those people are have disappeared. So the issue is is still the broken system. There's no there's the only af- approach is an enforcement only approach, and then that sentiment goes all the way into uh, the. You know, the ranchers, some of the ranchers, and we're still following up in terms of our investigation in terms of what, you know, what happened. Some were, were, were still present on that trail that we have. And, and, uh, but, uh, at least 12 of those water stations were missing. So I don't know. I, I don't see the, the, the enforcement efforts of, by the state, the governor having any effect whatsoever right now on deterring anybody. Well, we're going to continue to look at the governor's policies. Eddie Canales, thanks so much for being with us, director of the South Texas Human Rights Center. We're going to stay in Texas to look at the impact of the massive heat dome and extreme heat on Texas workers and prisoners. News reports show at least three people have died after working in triple-digit heat. A post office worker in Dallas, a utility lineman in East Texas, and a construction worker in Houston. This comes as the Republican governor, Greg Abbott, just signed into law a law that went into effect July 1st that overrides local ordinances that require mandatory water breaks for workers. 
Meanwhile, during record heat in June, news reports show 32 people died in Texas prisons, most of which lack air conditioning. None were officially attributed to heat, but they included prisoners in their 30s who died from heart attacks or cardiac arrest in the uncooled prisons as temperatures soared into the triple digits. From more, we go to Dallas, where we're joined by the Texas Observer's special investigative correspondent, Stephen Monticelli, whose recent piece is headlined, Texans Die from Heat After Governor Bans Mandatory Water Breaks. Why don't, Stephen, we start right there. Talk about the law that now bans water breaks. So the ban on water breaks is a part of a larger bill, uh, HB 2127, otherwise known as the Death Star, which it has been dubbed by critics uh, for its capacity to effectively zap any local legislation that is preempted by the bill. The bill preempts local legislation in eight different areas, uh, including labor. And specifically, the bill did mention worker breaks as being subject to this preemption. Now, to be clear, the bill does not actually go into effect until September 1st. But we have already seen uh, a shocking number of deaths amid the record heat wave. Uh, The three that you mentioned, there is at least 11 in a county in Texas where a lot of people did not have air conditioning and two uh, individuals, a stepfather and his uh, stepson uh, at a national park. The heat is oppressive and deadly. And Texas has a history of more workers dying on the job due to heat-related illness than pretty much any other state. And so as this bill, um, you know, as we approach the the date for its uh, coming into effect, uh, a lot of local communities are concerned that the breaks that have been won through passage of legislation in Austin and Dallas, uh, two more liberal cities in the state, those will be rolled back if a uh, lawsuit that's been filed does not put a stay on the bill. And could you talk about who are the workers uh, largely affected uh, by uh, uh, this legislation, especially in the cities that you mentioned? Yes. So uh, you had mentioned, Amy had mentioned construction workers being a group of folks that would no longer get these mandatory water breaks. The mandatory water break legislation that was passed in cities like Austin and Dallas and being considered in cities like San Antonio prior to the passage of the Death Star bill effectively forced employers who have workers outside uh, to give them water breaks. And these water breaks had to be mandatory. It was not sort of a discretionary thing that had to be put in place. And the first of these was passed in 2010 in Austin and in Dallas in 2015. And over the the period of time since, we've seen a dramatic reduction in workplace-related heat illness and heat death. Workplace-related heat illness dropped by 78% since 2011. Uh, and workplace-related deaths uh, due to heat um, dropped by half. So, uh, you know, workers such as construction workers, yard workers, uh, post office workers, utility line workers, anyone who has to spend a significant portion of their time outside to get their job done will be impacted by this. Well, Stephen, before we go, we want to ask you about prisoners. 
what's happening when the heat soars in these prisons that are largely not air-conditioned? Well, they effectively turn into ovens, um, you know, these concrete structures where there is no air conditioning in many of them across the state. Um, they are cooking prisoners alive. Uh, there have been many days in which uh, it is 90 degrees at three in the morning. There's very little reprieve for the people who have to sit in these prison cells and face this heat. And the reality is the vast majority of them have not been given death sentences. And, uh, you know, the treatment that they're facing is, frankly, inhumane. And the numbers, uh, news reports show 32 people died in Texas prisons. Yes. Yes, 32. Uh, and Texas prisons are uh, notoriously... Uh, they, they, they don't like to give up the records. They're notoriously stingy with the records that they give up. So the exact cause of death for all of these prisoners is as yet uh, unknown um, and still being investigated. But I, I think a very likely contributing cause would be hyperthermia. Stephen Monticelli, I want to thank you for being with us, special investigative correspondent at the Texas Observer. We'll link to your piece, Texans Die from Heat After Governor Bans Mandatory Water Breaks. Next up, we'll speak with a TV meteorologist who resigned his job after receiving a death threat over his reporting on the climate emergency in Iowa. Back in 30 seconds. You're going to need somebody on your bond, performed by Buffalo Nichols. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez, as we end today's show with a TV meteorologist in Iowa who resigned his job after receiving a series of death threats and harassing messages over his coverage of the climate crisis. This is how Chris Gloninger, chief meteorologist for the CBS affiliate CCI-TV in Des Moines, Iowa, signed off Friday after his final broadcast. I'm walking away from a career, an 18-year career in television that I dreamed of since second grade, so that's why I'm a little emotional. Uh, and I can't thank KCCI enough for the opportunity to become chief meteorologist. I'm not giving up. I'm just reinventing myself, finding ways that I can make a bigger difference with climate change. More important than ever, as the Earth recorded three of its warmest days, now four of its warmest days this week. That was Chris Gloninger Friday. This is a clip from one of his recent broadcasts for KCCI-TV in which he connected the dots between the Canadian wildfires and the climate crisis. As the planet warms, a lot of these fires are gaining steam and seeing explosive growth because of the warming planet. And we are paying the price in the form of poor air quality across the state. And if we look back at the month of May, globally, it was the third warmest on record, the warmest ocean water temperatures that we have seen on record. And at this point, already an 89 89% chance that 2023 will be not just a top 10, but a top five warmest on record. Big signals concerning trends. So for more, we're joined now from Falmouth, Massachusetts by Chris Gloninger.
He's resigned his job as KCCI-TV chief meteorologist in Des Moines, Iowa, and started a new position as a senior climate scientist at the Woods Hole Group. So, Chris, take us back to the beginning. You started the country's first weekly series on climate change when you were in Boston. But then why did you go to Iowa, which is so important, even in determining the president of the United States, but to be the chief meteorologist? And what happened to you when you started your reports? Amy, as cheesy as this sounds, we wanted to make a difference. My wife and I have no connection to Iowa, no family, no friends there going into the move. We truly made the move because I thought I could fill a void, a void where no one was talking about climate change. And station management saw that need as well. And I commend them for bringing me on board to do that. And it was a big leap of faith going from Boston, where it tended to be a, a preaching to the choir, right into the lion's den. And when you heard me connecting the dots, it wasn't anything outrageous. Iowa is powered 65% by wind, right? So that is true renewable energy independence. Uh, farmers get a good amount of money for land leases for those wind turbines. 11% of the GDP is agriculture-based. And you would think, being at the mercy of Mother Nature, that a lot more people would care about the climate crisis. Well, could you talk about the reaction that you got and the the emails and and the uh, the people sh- threats show- people showing up at your house? You, Ron, I, you know, it was it, it caught me off guard. Uh, my my wife um, was running errands. I had come back from a haircut, and I read this email, and it said, "What's your address? Us conservative Iowans want to give you a welcome that you'll always remember." Kind of what the blank tried to do to Justice Kavanaugh. And police, when they when they read that, said, this is more than just an email that states, I'm going to come and kill you. It was deliberate. It had essentially a plan uh, on how this person would carry it out. Now, he was arrested uh, for harassment in the third degree, $150 fine in, in Iowa. And I think what's most concerning in all of this is, yes, the threat was made, but In my position as meteorologist, a chief meteorologist in a major severe weather market in the United States, it's a high profile job. And not a single remark from Republican leadership in that state condemning what was said. And this was something that was widely reported on when it happened last year and again during my resignation. Chris Gloninger, last July, you shared this series of disturbing emails that you got regarding your coverage. One message said, quote, science like Fauci, you you dumb son of a bleep. Go east and drown from the ice cap melting, dumb bleep. That message referring to President Biden's former chief medical advisor, Anthony Fauci. Another message said, what's your home address? We conservative Iowans would like to give you an Iowan welcome you will never forget. Um, If you can— Talk about the response of your network. You were thanking them at the end of your final broadcast, but why you felt you had to leave and how much support did you get? Uh, tremendous support. And, uh, Amy, what, what's funny is if you notice that first email, if you find humor in it, it he acknowledges that the ice caps are warming. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, uh, but yes, when, when I, I received the series of obsessive emails, it was— it started the ball rolling with conversations between my wife, my wife and I. What is next for us? I went to therapy every single week for uh, a year following this event, and it took a lot of soul searching and reflecting on what do we do next. And ultimately, was to retool and reinvent myself in my career. 
Uh, I have always been engaged in what I do. I made it into a top 10 market in Boston, Massachusetts, and I was finding myself at a loss for words, uh, filling my weathercast with ums and uhs, and it just wasn't me. And, uh, and my station supported it. Again, I commend them for making the effort to talk about climate change in an area where it hadn't been talked about before. But, uh, you know, meteorologists need to be doing this more, not less. So I encourage my colleagues to keep going and uh, and find a place to, to make the connections. Colleagues, uh, the meteorological community is a small one. Have you heard uh, sim- of similar experiences from uh, uh, other colleagues of yours in, in uh, other stations and cities? There are a ton of, of negative emails. There isn't uh, the, the, the number of death threats. There, there haven't been a lot of death threats made against my colleagues. We all receive the same a number of emails that push back against our coverage. And it's that 11%, according to the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication and George Mason University, that are dismissive. But you're far more likely to write in when you don't approve of something that is happening. And I get that. And they are the loud minority. Uh, but a lot of what they're giving us in return is photoshopped graphs, poorly at that, uh, poorly done at that. And uh, they're quoting self-proclaimed experts that that say that they are um, an expert in climate change. But in reality, they have no background in the subject matter. But yet they are getting hundreds of retweets because it follows their ideology. It would be like asking an airline pilot and talking to them about your cholesterol because your cardiologist said you have high cholesterol, but you're trusting the judgment of a pilot. I, it just it, the logic blows my mind that that I can have an eight-year uh, college background between my, my undergraduate degree and master's degree, but this person, the self-proclaimed person, holds more weight because, again, it follows their beliefs and ideology and not the science and data. And, of course, Chris, you're not the only one. In 2006, Dr. Heidi Cullen of the Weather Channel urged other TV forecasters to address climate change in their reporting. She was met with criticism, a lot of it sexist. She later went on to write on her Weather Channel blog, if a meteorologist can't speak to the fundamental science of climate change, then maybe the AMS, the American Meteorological Society, shouldn't give them a seal of approval. If a meteorologist has an AMS seal of approval, which is used to confer legitimacy to TV meteorologists, then meteorologists have a responsibility to truly educate themselves on the science of global warming. We just have a minute left, Chris. What is your recommendation, both for Iowa, which often can help to determine the president of the United States, the Republican presidential candidates are traipsing through right now, um, to meteorologists, what they need to say. Um, first of all, Bob Inglis, Republican congressman from the Carolinas, uh, ran on climate, uh, lost, unfortunately, but works with colleagues to help uh, Republicans understand the impacts of climate change. That is important. To my meteorology colleagues, if you're talking about an earthquake, if you're talking about a volcanic eruption or a meteor shower, you can talk about climate change. Our core curriculum matches more with climate than it does with astronomy, geology, and geography. And if you're okay talking about those three, then you have every reason to be connecting the dots between climate change. And as Heidi mentioned in that statement, make sure you're up on the latest research. It is part of your job. We should always be learning.
Chris Gloninger, we want to thank you for being with us. Was the chief meteorologist for the CBS affiliate in Des Moines, Iowa, KCCI-TV, resigned Friday after receiving a series of death threats and harassing messages as he covered the climate crisis. Now, a senior climate scientist at the Woods Hole Group, speaking to us from Falmouth, Massachusetts. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez.